Super Bowl Sunday, usually I make a perfect excuse for everyone and say, I'm sorry that everyone's not here. But I mean, it is the 49ers after all, so come on. There's no better place, really. Where would you rather celebrate? Someone sent me a text and said, we should celebrate that we're here with some Gatorade showers and whatever on the people that are here. There's no better place to be, right? In God's house. I was talking with a young man this morning that you saw up here on the stage. You had a junior high, high school on this side and high school student here and a young adult here blessing you with some worship. And I told him, you know what? 10 years from now when your friends are in a different place than you are, you just remember, you thought your mom was dragging you to church. You thought your mom was making you go to church. You got to go to church, right? Sherry was talking about baby dedications this morning. Baby dedications, you guys remember the whole holding the baby up before the Lord, that Simba moment, you know, with your child? I'm pleading with my son, my, my millennial son, let me, let me dedicate our grandchildren, please. And it's weird how people think of that whole thing, like, well, is it or isn't it or whatever? It's like, hey, it's an opportunity to stand before God with this precious gift and say thank you, right? And if you guys are part of that, we are old school about our child dedications you know, we kind of have this part for the parents, and then we kind of have a part for the crowd, and whatever we can do to train them up, right? They need a fighting chance, and let's be honest, they need a fighting chance, and the world we're sending them out to, church, we need to give them all the tools we can to, to fight the good fight out there, so thank you for that. But uh, I also mentioned this week membership class, and after having the vote last week and everything that went along with uh, Vision Sunday, quite a few people came up to me and talked to me about membership. And I thought that was kind of interesting that we've, we've come so far as a church and a society that we've lost contact with what it means to be a member in the church. Like, if you're over 50 in the church today, you remember how going to a membership class was like just the beginning of like this 10-step progress where first your DNA, and then your blood check, and then your background, and then your lineage. No, I'm just kidding. They didn't do any of that. But there was a part where you did have to poke your thumb and sign the covenant at the end, right? You had this covenant, you signed a covenant to be a member. And now we kind of come to this place in society where, hey, if you attend, or if you know someone who attends, you're a member. And I'm like, of what? What, what am I? So I, I go to Del Taco on Thursdays, I, or Tuesdays for talk. Am I a member of Del Taco because I go there? <laughs> Del Taco doesn't care anything about me. They've never sent me anything, right? I, El Matador, I talked to him about, like, why is he not saying, I know the owner, why is he not sending me stuff? Because just because you attend something doesn't mean you're a member, right? And so the church is so much more important. Talking with some people this morning, have you ever, if you've ever been sick, if you've ever had a need in your life, if you've ever allowed the church to kind of step in that gap for you, where the community of believers gets to be, okay, you went and had a surgery, you weren't planning on that, your husband's at home, he hasn't learned how to cook, come on, you've been married 40 years, the man's going to die in two days, right? That's all there is to it, but... The community of the church comes in and food comes to your house magically by the front door. And you're thinking, what is this? It's called the care ministry. Pastor, Pastor Bill helps out with that. And we have about 30 people in the church that provide care to people. We have people that are shut in. We have people that are struggling, mental health issues. And the church provides care with that. We have grief ministry that Leslie provides. And she, she provides not only grief care to people in our church, but to grief care to people outside of the church. I was actually on a that neighborhood kind of app this weekend and this lady was talking about life without her husband and no one could trigger anything of like personal to her and they're so so sad and they, yeah and i said 
If you need help, call this number. And Leslie will sign you up. And we would love to come in the gap and fill that gap with you. What else can you offer someone? But the church body can offer so much more. And so I want to encourage you, whatever, Sherry said, whatever age your kids are, if you missed out on child dedication, stand them up here. Let's just do it and forget about the age. Let's just stand them up here and say, Proverbs 22 says, train them up. It is a lifelong commitment. I have, you know, if you have the privilege of still training your child at this stage of life, it's a lifelong commitment to train them up. And in the same sense, the membership class allows you to realize, what, what are you actually saying I'm in with? Like, I get it that I love you and you love me and, you know, we're a perfect family and we can sing Barney songs. But, but in reality, it's so much more than that. When I say I'm your pastor, it means I'm shepherding you. It means I'm making a commitment when I go home at night and find out that your kid's struggling to get before the Lord as it was my kid struggling, right? I'm making a commitment to be here on Sunday and commit myself to studying no matter how I feel all week long. My feelings are out the window. I'm making a commitment to shepherd. If you want to go be part of a church where you're a number, if you want to go be part of a church where you just attend, that's available to you. But part of our membership class is the beauty of inviting you in to a family, and part of that family is the idea of grow. We have three key components to being a member. And the first one is growing with God. Attendance is obvious, right? The places you attend, the places you spend time are the places you care about. Okay, Where, when, you do, when you do go to a restaurant continuously, what you're saying is, I care about that and I'm investing in that. But you also do that with every dollar you spend. You spend dollars in things that you care about. So one of the things you'll learn about in the membership class is this idea of growing. We don't want you just to attend. We want you to grow. We want you to learn how to pray. We want you to learn how to get involved. We want you to learn what it means to be a member in a church. And if you do that, what you'll, what you'll see is each one of the components, grow, serve, and tithe. Each one of those will make greater sense. So I'm going to go over them kind of each week, a new component for you. But I hope you'll be thinking about membership in advance. That will be the last Sunday that I teach before my surgery. And uh, I'm looking forward to praying for you all while I recover. Thank you. And because I've been sweating so much and going through the motions, I also want to share with you another gift from my family. I guess I sweated enough where people thought I needed my own napkins and embroidered with them so that I could pull off the professional pastor look. And just thank you guys for that. I've, I got glasses. I got gray hairs on my sideburns. I, got, I don't know if it's going to pieces or if this is, this is our way of celebrating together, but uh, look, we are doing ministry along the way. We are almost done with Acts. We are in 26 today. We got two more chapters. We're going to take a small break when I leave for my uh, surgery, uh, and the guys will be, Rod will be kind of directing us through Thessalonians or Philippians or something. They're going to pick a book, but we are traveling with the first church over a 30 to acts is about 30 to 33 years period of time and in that we're seeing the same kind of things happening and so i want to encourage you when you do a book study one of the things that'll happen sometimes is it kind of feels there's some redundancy in there and you may feel like i've been here and i've done that but what you're going to find out today is paul is constantly sharing his testimony paul is constantly kind of having these moments where he has to give accountability for who he is and unless that's ever happened to you, unless you are sharing your testimony on the regular, this kind of stuff may not seem that exciting. But for any of you who's ever shared your testimony, do you remember the first time you shared your testimony with somebody? A bit bumpy, maybe? 
a little confusing? No? Right away you had it, Mama D had it perfect out of the shoot. But for the most part, you remember the first time you didn't know what to talk about, right? You don't know what to share. Well, something happened. I was at camp. I was at Hume Lake. Uh, I'd been going to camp with kids for years. And I always got saved every Sunday at church because I was confused. And, um, and I, I was convinced my mom told the pastor what I had done that week. And so, you know, I'm, that, this is my early testimony in life. And, it, and in some ways, it was more a bio of me. In some ways, it was more my recounting what God had done in my life. And in some ways, people heard it and thought, okay, that's interesting. And I'm like, you know, so I heard these kids giving their testimony, and then you'd light a piece of uh, wood and throw it in the fire. And, they give, and I was like, they did it once, and they were done. Why do I have to keep doing it? What is it that I'm missing about it? And so what I learned from that was every time I shared my testimony, it kind of morphed and developed, Right? And I'm to a point now where when I share my testimony, although I give maybe 30 quick seconds to where it started in Hume Lake at 78 and kind of this whole thing, I want to get to the meat of the, of the testimony. I want to get to what God actually did for me. Because the reality is, is Jesus, Paul, all the disciples, the apostles, they gave lots of messages. They had lots of opportunities to speak truth to people. But the way that ministry actually takes place, the most effective way that ministry will take place is one-on-one, okay? Your one-on-one relational testimony with someone will have greater effect than any message ever preached by the most eloquent of preachers. And that's not to say that God hasn't used an an eloquent message to lead a bunch of people, but the reality is, think of like the Samaritan woman. The Samaritan woman is just in a single event in the life of Christ written down for us to realize that ministry is taking place along the way. And along the way, you need water. And along the way, going to a well is a pretty common event. But why would you think that going to the well today would be any different? You go to the well, you get the bucket, you drop it down, you pull up water. Same as it was, same as it will be. But today, Jesus went there, and there was somebody there, and it was different. And in that ministry along the way, being prepared, part of what I hope that we do with kind of come to church every Sunday, is being prepared to value your testimony means when that Samaritan woman is standing at the well today, you realize something about today could be different, right? This is why I love the Old Testament. This is why I love certain passages and they're kind of anchors for me. Choose this day who you will serve. Choose this day, Joshua. Why? Because you may not have tomorrow, okay? And tomorrow in your mind, you may have an incredible message ready to go for someone that you want to share, but you may not be here tomorrow. So who is it that God has placed in front of you today that you can share your testimony of what God has done for you? And he's getting water with her, and he's talking to her, and, he, and he's a Jew, and she's a Samaritan, so it's already funky, okay? There's a reason why she's there midday, because who else is out midday? No one right? If you, if you could live and be involved with anything, you're not going out midday, but if you don't want interactions with people, you go out midday. She's there trying to avoid the crowd. She's, she's there trying to avoid any interaction with a Jewish man, and yet today the Jewish man comes up to her and asks her for water. This whole thing seems pretty complex, but it's not. It's so simple, and just the simple act of drinking water, right? What did they have? plastic Dixie cups inside of there that you hand? 2,000 years ago, what did they have? A ladle, right? A bucket and a ladle, like you serve soup from. 
This is intimacy 101. This is the power of your testimony. This is the power of being ready along the way to speak. And this is what Paul is learning. He, Jesus simply drinks water from the ladle with her. She drinks water from the ladle. And he begins to have a simple interactive conversation where all of a sudden she learns something. I perceive, she says, I perceive there's something different about you from drinking water. Because as Paul is learning along the way, he started off giving his testimony to many different people. At some point, he gave it to many different men. As the chapters kind of began, we found out uh, uh, Felix, the first governor, okay? You know, like Newsom is a governor, so he's a person that's over an area. He gives it to someone like that, and nothing happens. Two years later, he's still in jail. He's still witnessing to all the jailers along the way. But another governor steps in, Festus. And he gives his testimony, and then nothing happens. As he continues to sit in jail, I'm sure in his mind he's probably processing, okay, Lord, along the way, I'm just going to witness to everyone, but something's happening. When you look back at his testimonies, when you look back, there's nuances along the way that he kind of is adding. He's kind of like, he's trying this. He's kind of curtailing it to each person that he talks to. Now, in this chapter 26, he's before the king. He's before the king, and this is the last step before being before Caesar, okay? Caesar would be like the president, the highest you can go, right? And all of a sudden, he realizes, yeah, it's King Agrippa II, and he's with his, you know, incestuous sister, Bernice, and this is not the ideal situation, but how is it I keep standing before these people and sharing the same thing over and over again, and I don't really seem to be getting to the point, is the point simply that I can tell them my testimony of who I was on this road to Damascus? Because every time he shares, it's about the road to Damascus incident. But instead of realizing the power of his testimony, he starts to share the points of the nuance. Uh, well, I heard the Lord speak. Well, they heard the Lord speak, but only I understood the Lord. Well, I was blind for three days. Uh, Ananias was afraid of me. And this is, these are all nuances that are part of the testimony. But what we're going to find out today is he's realizing what he needs to say is what actually took place. And when we get to those three points this morning, I think you're going to realize something. The power of your testimony is not just to, to replay your bio of what happened. That's important. But if you can, remember this. He must increase. I must decrease okay the power of your testimony is we run out of time because remember he's got to stand before the king he's he's before the king okay only one stop left you're going to stand before caesar what is it that you really want to say it's time to trim off the edges and get down to the meat and potatoes of what do you want to say and how do you want to say it because the power of you standing before me and sharing has greater impact than you could possibly ever imagine He's a Roman citizen, okay? Somewhere in his family's legacy, grandparents, whoever it was, they owned land. If you own land in a Roman kingdom, then by default, you were entitled to Roman citizenship. To be a Jew who had Roman citizenship was a great value to him. It meant that he was always protected by that. He has this situation, though he's been in jail for two years without one charge against him, and he remains. And so he's continually processing this. How can I still be in jail without having a charge against me? Okay, Lord, you're using it, but now I'm going to stand before the king today. Is there something that needs to change? Every time he changes, every time he changes, he keeps making nuance. Okay, I'm speaking to a Jewish audience. I'll tilt it this way. 
The second time he gives his testimony, I'm speaking to brothers and sisters of mine. I'll address them. Hey, brothers and sisters of the Lord, I'll nuance it for them. And now he's starting to realize something. I don't need to nuance anything. I just need to make peace with the fact that God continues to divinely place me in front of someone to speak. I'm going to speak now like it makes a difference. This is my first point for you this morning, and then I'm going to pray. The more you share your testimony, the greater your confidence will become in it. The more you share your testimony, the greater your confidence will be in it, right? If you've never shared your testimony, then I would expect you by default to think, nobody wants to hear my testimony, right? I've heard other testimonies before, and they're fabulous, so why would I give my testimony, no testimony is better or worse. Every testimony is personal to you and relative to you. But if it's the testimony that changed your life, you need to know what you need to say. And you need to know how to say it. And you need to be able to share that at any moment the Lord gives you a chance to throw seeds. I mentioned to you last week, what is the primary call of a believer? Throw seeds. How do you throw seeds? Share your testimony. Every time you share your faith, you throw seeds, okay? Super important. All right, let me pray. We'll get into the passage, Acts 26. I'm going to focus on 12 through 32, and, uh, and we'll start here. Father God, this morning, we come before you with excitement and anticipation because depending where we are in our testimony, depending where we are in our faith, today might be the day that we learn something and we realize something about the power of my testimony in front of an individual that's God-ordained. If you ordained that moment, if you appointed that moment, if it was known in the heavenly realm that today would be the day that I stand in front of my barista or my checkout person or my waitress and simply say, can I pray for you or is everything okay and allow that testimony to be brought to the surface. If we realize the power and significance of what eternity actually means, right, the difference be between spending heaven and hell for eternity with the almighty maker who loves us, or complete and utter separation in darkness. Father, we would, we would so take the time to make peace with our testimony. We would so take the time to just truly believe that that's what you gave us, and that's what we can give others. So I pray this morning that as we hear Paul give us a couple of specific points that would really kind of help our testimony find its way to the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help us, God. We would ask it in your son's precious and holy name. Amen. So the last time we speak, like I said, he's in jail. He's gone before the, the two governors. Nothing's happened. The problem is going to happen here is that if he actually gets sent to the king, the Caesar, without having a charge against him, it could be a problem. It could be a problem because it says incompetence in, for those that have been put over the region, right? If you're a governor or if you're a king over an area and you decide to send someone to Caesar without even having a charge, what is the king actually going to discuss with them? How did you get here? Why would they send you to me? I mean, it's the Supreme Court of today, right? You're not going to send someone to our Supreme Court, the highest court in the land, and have no official charge. You're not just going to send them up there for the weekend so they can have a conversation. Nor would these two guys want to do that. Festus and Felix, if neither one have done it, 
one blames the other. He left him in jail. Well, he was doing a favor for them, and so I don't know what to do, and so I'll bring him to the next guy. And now King King Agrippa and his sister stand before him. This man who's not worthy to judge anything, but they have one final opportunity to kind of render him with a charge. As we, if, you would, if you want to read the first 11 verses with your small group, it's a recounting of kind of what happens. He talks to the king about understanding that, you know, I understand that you have cultural nuances in your faith. So being a Roman citizen and being Jewish meant he could talk about his Jewish faith without persecution. It was protected in his Roman citizenship, okay? In being protected, anything about that Jewish faith that he was talking about, a nuance of that, which is the nuance that really made the Sanhedrin mad, uh, the Sanhedrin, remember, are the ruling ten. So the Pharisees is the middle class people. The Pharisees' job is to help people understand the laws, the 600 plus laws that they have to live by every day. The Pharisees are a hand-selected group of ten that rule over everyone. When they rule, they're the supreme court for all Jews in the land. Whatever the Sanhedrin comes up with is law for everyone. And there was still like a struggle going on on uh, resurrection of the dead. He's talking to them, hearing that. He's like, that's a nuance of his faith. And as a nuance of his faith, that's protected. There's no plausible charge that can be placed because of that. Meanwhile, he continues to talk about his other beliefs, the situation through verses 4 through 8. And he says, hey, look, I'm a Pharisee. Remember that, trained by Gamaliel. If I've been trained as a Pharisee, I love the law. And I know the law, okay? If there's something a Pharisee knows and understands, it's the law. So don't use the law against me. I have no problems with the law. But one thing I want you to, to know that I have a problem with is I was so fervent in my faith. I was so fervent in my desire to stop this movement called the way. Remember when Christianity first came out? It was called the way, right? In other words, the Sanhedrin, the leaders of the church, didn't know what way to go. And as kind of a a counter to that, this group, this upcoming group of believers were called the way. And then just a short while later in Antioch, the first Antioch just up the coast, they were called Christians, okay? But first they were called the way. He says, here's what I want you to know. I killed them. When I found them, when I found anyone following the way, I killed them. And, And it talks about the fact that I put my vote on it. So by saying he put his vote on it, he confirms that he was himself a Sanhedrin, right? If you were a Pharisee, you were part of the group, you were part of the culture. But if you were a Sanhedrin, then you would actually vote. And it says right in there, I cast my vote for Stephen's death. I cast my vote. So Paul has every kind of authority you could possibly want. And with that authority, like I said, he was sent out to go to Damascus on the way to Jerusalem with a law that said anyone part of the way I have the right to kill any way that I choose to kill them because they are in absolute opposition to everything we believe and so I did this matter of fact if they wouldn't recount what they said about their faith I oftentimes would force them to blaspheme Later on in Paul's ministry, as he begins to write many of the different books, right? He writes 14 of the 27 New Testament books. As he begins to write those books, one of the greatest regrets, he calls himself the sinner among sinners, right? Of the things that he's done. I think you can kind of look back to probably, this is probably one of those areas that he looks back on his life and thinks, this is probably one of the most incredible things that I did that was an abomination to God, is that I killed these people that were confessing his name, and then I forced others of them to recount and blaspheme the name of Jesus. 
All that to be said is the same fervency that he had against the Lord, he now on the road to Damascus will find is being turned towards the Lord. So let's read our passage and see what he experiences this time in giving his testimony that he has learned through all these different journeys. So I will start in 12. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with all authority and commission of the chief priest, right? He's going to Damascus with these letters that are signed by every single person of authority to authorize him to kill anyone of the way. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, and it shone down upon me and those who journeyed with me. And when they had all fallen on the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in Hebrew, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. Um, that has not been mentioned in any other of the previous times that he's given his testimony, the kicking against the goads, nor the fact that it was in the Hebrew language. Remember, I'm talking about there's nuances sometimes that become kind of part of our testimony. And so he's nuancing these things, thinking somehow this will help people. But what he's going to actually move towards, as we're going to see here in a few more lines, he's moving away from that. This has all been part of his MO. He's, just, he's done this, he's done this, he's done this. So it's like he's saying it again. But somehow in the next few verses, it's going to change and something's going to happen, what he needs to talk about. And then on the way, it says in verse 15, uh, then kicking against the goes, and I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. 16, rise, stand upon your feet, for I have appeared, for you, appeared to you for this purpose, for this purpose, okay? This is where it begins to change. To appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen in me and those which I will appear to you delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. And this is what we're going to tear apart, starting in verse 18. One, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. Two, that they might receive forgiveness of their sins. And three, a place amongst those who are sanctified by faith in me. So we will take quite a bit of time and tear those apart. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to my heavenly vision, but declared to those first in Damascus, because remember, that's where he's on the road to. That's first where it happened, in Damascus, and then as he continued north to Jerusalem, and then throughout the region of Judea and to the Gentiles, that all should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their faith. Okay? Each time, each audience got a little bit different information. Each time, each audience got a little bit different information. He realized something. Along the way, as he was going, he was learning. Here's a good point of encouragement that's not part of the notes. As you walk in faith, you should be learning more about your faith. If you've kind of reached a point in your faith where you're kind of good with it, and that's kind of all you need, I would encourage you this morning to take a deep breath and set that thought aside. That's not what sanctification is. Okay? Sanctification is a Christianese word. It's a word that the church loves to say. But let me explain what sanctification is. Sanctification means made holy. Okay? By implication, if you have to be made holy, what does that mean you're not? Okay. So you come to faith, and we'll look at it like a mathematic chart. For all my mathematics, I probably should have made a graph here. You come to Jesus. There's a point in your life where someone shares faith or someone shares something about faith and you realize that you don't have faith and that you need faith and you decide to put your faith in Christ and you go through the process of, you know, asking for forgiveness of your sins, whatever it is. And the first point on your timeline is made. Okay. As you begin to live your life, 
and grow and read and pray and study, each time that line should start from the initial point, should be moving in a continuous up and down pattern as you move through your life. So that 10 years early into your life, you should be somewhere up the sanctification line. You should know more about your faith. You should be more comfortable in your faith. You should be able to answer a few more questions than when you first started. Right? If, if the opening line is drinking milk, the Bible has a comment about that. Okay, it's okay to start with milk, but move to meat. Right? Milk implies immaturity. Milk implies new to faith. That's okay. We're all new to faith at some point. But as you're moving through that process of learning and growing, you are being made holy. Right? So will you ever be fully sanctified? Yes, when you breathe your last breath and you're dead. Congratulations, that's what you're working for, all right? In the meantime, you will never be holy. You know, the Bible says you're holy and without condemnation, Romans 8, 1. But it is a process that we're moving through, constantly reminding ourselves that as we grow with God and go with God, we're moving up the line. Paul's saying, hey, look. I've done all these different things for all these different people, and I've moved left to this group, and I've kind of nuanced right to this group. What do I really need to tell them about? What is it that God actually purposed me for? I told you earlier, one of the things that he purposed for is he clarified, you, I must increase, he, he must increase, and I must decrease. Since this, Paul is not afraid of, for me to live, Paul writes to the Philippians, for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Why is it that I'm making my testimony so candy-coated or kind of convenient that I'm worried about what it says to people, and I'm worried about what they do with it? How about I just give my testimony, say what it is, and trust that the Lord appointed me to say it, and whatever happens, happens. Okay, right? If you just had that confidence that I'm just going to say it, I'm presenting eternity to someone. When you present your testimony to someone, you're presenting eternity to somebody. If they say no to you, are they refuting you? It, it, Mighty Cruz, if I share my faith with you and tell you that God loves you and that Christ died for you and that he wants you to be part of his family, if I spend the time sharing my faith with you, if you decide at the end that you don't believe that, is she refusing me? Is she refuting what I'm saying? No, she's refusing the Holy Spirit. Right? The Bible makes it very clear, church, there's only one unforgivable sin another ch church word blasphemy right we can use it for whatever we want it only really talks about one specific act to refute the work of the holy spirit to refuse god that's the only thing that becomes unforgivable right because in refusing that testimony that someone was sharing in the fact that the holy spirit was trying to share with you or show you that there's a different way you refusing that spirit of God becomes the unforgivable sin. And Paul says, why do I keep doing this? How is that? Well, and I spoke in Hebrew. What language was, what does it matter what language he spoke? Hebrew, Aramaic? We know that he spoke. The point is that he spoke to you. And the point is that what he told you is what you needed to do. That's what you need to focus on. Not all these other things that are happening. Sometimes in life, we get caught up with all the stuff happening. Any of you kind of caught up a little bit with what's happening in the world? It's easy to do, right? But what does all that stuff that's happening have to do with salvation? If Jesus walks through that door right now, and the next sound that we all hear is ding dong, and that door opens, and it's Jesus himself, and he says, by the way, this is the last Sunday for any of you. Matter of fact, none of you are going to leave that foyer, none of you are going to leave that door. This is it. 
This was as good as it gets in life. And now the next thing it will be is Pastor Jeff steps down and I step into my rightful place. The conversation I'm going to have with you is, what have you done with me? You're going to start scrambling, right? There's going to be a lot of processing going on in your head. Because if you haven't been thinking about it every day, you don't have any more time to think about it. It's called, it's called out, right? What have you done with Jesus? And I need to know what you've done with it today. Because... Whatever door you go from, here, left, right, is a choice that you made, right? There's only one unforgivable sin. I'm willing to forgive you for anything, for any reason, and I will acknowledge Romans 8 as written down. There is now no condemnation for those in Christ. You want to stand holy and white? You want to stand made justified, sanctified in me? Then claim my name and tell me what you've done with me. And to that, step into eternity, and may I tell you, well done, my good and faithful son. Right? Well, but are you thinking about that when you share your testimony? Are you thinking about what it actually means when you present? Are you thinking about the fulcrum point that's being, you know, pendulum? Eternity in heaven or hell? No, we don't think about that. A lot of times we underestimate the value of what we're saying to the point like, no, that's like what pastors say or what elders say. Right? Some, somebody who's holier than me has to be able to say it better. Sometimes, guys, you're as holy as it gets. Sometimes you will be the only person in that individual's life that has a chance to share the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And Paul's like, why do I keep sharing all this other stuff? What do I need to focus on? What is the actual purpose? Did the Lord give me a purpose? He did. He said, for the sake of salvation, I want you to evangelize. I want you to focus on this, Paul. No matter how you share your faith, no matter how much truth you see in it, it will always be the root that someone has to becoming a believer in Christ. And I've appointed you to be a witness. And in that witness is the word serve, which that will be one of our membership words. We'll talk about that next week. To serve others, to live it out in such a way. So go to Jerusalem, go to Judea, then go to the Gentiles, and then go to the end of the earth. And I told you last week, 14,000 documented miles for this man. 2,000 years ago, 14,000 miles. Okay, so what is it, 6,000 to the East Coast or 5,600 from here? 5,600, 6,000 back, 12,000, and then maybe the Texas, whatever. I mean, it's a good trip walking, right? This guy's doing work. He's in a boat, he's in caravans, he's on his feet, and he has taken this literal commission, and he said, this is what the Lord commissioned me to do, and this is what I'm going to do. And everywhere he goes along the way, he follows the same pattern. Go, set it up, find some godly people, leave it in their hands. Don't micromanage, don't tell them what to do. Trust that the Spirit of God can lead godly men and women as they trust in faith, and then move on to the next place. Then when you get there, look for the house that takes you in, go, evangelize, share faith, find some godly men and women, leave it with them, and move on to the next place. And he is planting churches all over. If, you, if we put an actual map up and you saw all the different places that Paul is planting, you'd blow your mind away. That's why when you read the book of Philippians... What is the book of Philippians talking about? The church of Philippi. A group of people that he went and found, started them as a, as a church group, left them there, and then he writes letters to them to encourage them. Thessalonians, Thessalonica, the church that he started there, right? Corinth, Corinthians. These, that's all he's done, is simple, basic ministry, and he's now come to this beautiful point of his ministry where the Lord can increase. And this is what he comes up with. 
I keep saying my salvation. I keep giving my testimony. I'm starting to believe something, that when I share my testimony, somehow God can use what I'm about to say for eternity. If the first time is a little bit bumpy or awkward, it's okay. I'm going to keep going, and I'm going to keep growing. Every time you share your faith, it gets a little bit more refined. I'm going to try to remove the personalization stuff. Okay, I was blind for three days or blind for two days or spoke in Hebrew. Okay, that may or may not have been the case, but what was it that he wanted me to do? Focus on the inside. I'm a new creation in Christ. My sin is gone. I have a new heart. I can now do all things through Christ who strengthens me, right? You know all those verses, right? But you know why he's writing them. See, he's writing them out of this understanding that I've just lived that. God is asking me to do something that before I thought, mm, insurmountable. Insurmountable, God has already done this continuous times for me. Now I know there's nothing insurmountable for me. If God wants me to do it and God has purposed me to do it, I need to trust him with it. If they choose to refuse, Paul, they are not refuting you. They are refuting the Holy Spirit. So as Romans 12, 1 says, I will now present my life as a living sacrifice. I know we're going to try to do Romans later on, but there's just some passages out of Romans that are just so powerful. I, 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 I ask you, present yourself as a living sacrifice. How many of you woke up this morning and thought, my life, my two cents that comes out of my mouth, my life, when I share that with someone, is, is literally like a sacrifice unto God when I present that to someone else. You ever think about why people like incense? We were at the... Uh, swap meet this weekend over at golden west and for some reason people light incense as you're walking around and i have one of those super noses that's like Ugh. and whatever that's supposed to be blessing wise for that whole row usually causes me to avoid that whole row because but when the incense is effervescent last week if you were here if you had a chance to say after service last week someone in the church service felt uh, god calling them to be blessed and prayed for by our elders and they came up to me and said I cannot leave this building unless the elders and you pray for me this Sunday. And I said, okay. And I ran across the street and I got some frankincense and myrrh that my friend got for me from Israel at Christmas. And he said, the next time you get a chance to pray, it doesn't have a top on it. Just pour it on them. And you can really anoint them like the Bible says. And I've been waiting for it. And I got a chance to anoint this person. And the elders were praying. And, and the front of the church was just, it was just glowing. And, and then there was more people praying and more people praying. And we were praying for salvation. And we were praying for hope. And we were praying for healing. And more frankincense was purring. By the end of the day, my hands were so saturated in it. And as I went to drive home, a song came on the radio. Oh, gosh, I'm going to get emotional about this. Eesh. A song came on the radio, and I was just like, uh, it says, the Lord, uh, he, will never, he will never fail me. I, I sought the Lord, and he heard, and he answered. I sought, they just kept singing, I sought the Lord, and he heard, and he answered. And I was just sitting in my car, and I was just having like, moment. Just bawling like a little kid who lost his puppy. I hadn't lost anything. All I had was just a moment where the essence of God was just like, church, that's church. We're serving one another. We're, we're crying out with one another. We don't need fancy words. There was nothing eloquent prayed or nothing fabulous said. We were just trusting God at the very roots, the basic, because the goal is what? To have your eyes opened, right? I once was blind, but now I see. Like when you're sharing faith with someone, you have to realize something. You see and they don't. 
Have you ever been really frustrated by that? Sometimes you present something and it seems so cut and dry and so clear and they look at you like with that dog tilt, you know, like the what? And you're like, don't you see what I'm saying? Like this is eternity. And they're like, oh, is it? Yes, it is. Like if, if the Lord walked through that side and the devil walked through that side, would you believe it then? And the Bible would say, no, they still wouldn't believe. Right? There's people that walked and talked with Jesus. Let's just call it what it is. They walked and talked with Jesus. He was here 33 years. His active ministry started when he was 12 and he was in the temple. His missions ministry started when he was 30. So for three years, he walked nonstop in a 26-mile triangle, Judea, Samaria, 26 miles. How many miracles do you think those people saw day in and day out? And how many of those people do you think still didn't believe? A lot. So our job is not to try to understand why people do or why people don't. Our job is just to throw seeds. And every time you open your mouth and every time you share your testimony, and the more your testimony becomes refined, you're asking those people to have their eyes opened to the truth of salvation. You remember that little nuance in Paul's original story on the road to Damascus? The sun, the sun was so bright, his eyes were opened, but he couldn't see. He was then led by the arm to Damascus, incapacitated and blind. Ananias, a Christian from the town, was told to go pray for him, to pray for the most notorious, infamous killer of Christians who's now blind. Ananias says, I don't know, right? Can't blame him. But when he does pray for him, that little, did you catch the nuance? And as Ananias prayed for Paul, something like, scales fell off his eyes i remember doing that for my kids one day of who geez 20 years ago at youth group and i had sunflower seeds in my hand and for those visual learners as i prayed as i had the person pray for me and i did it i remember dropping the sunflower seeds from my hand to, to, to kind of visually show something that was covering my eyes came off and now i see you and paul he not only saw, but he understood, right? Because remember, a voice from heaven yells at him on the road, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And his answer is not, because I'm a Pharisee trained by Gamaliel. I'm a legacy. My dad was a Pharisee. I'm in the Sanhedrin. What do you mean, why? No, his response was, who are you? You don't even know who you're working for? Right? There's people living their Christian faith right now that if the Lord actually called to them, I have a feeling their response would be, who are you? Because they've been sold a different faith. They've been sold a different Jesus. There's a religion out there that teaches that there's a God of this planet, and that's God. But there's also gods of other planets, right? Maybe you're confused about something. The Bible tells us there's one. Has been, will be. If you're not praying to him and him alone, any other veneration of any other individual is a waste of time. Paul said, look, the goal is to open their eyes. Focus on opening their eyes. How do you open their eyes? Remind them it's about salvation. I could not see. I was doing the job fervently that I thought I was supposed to do. Look, I'm killing people. I'm making them blaspheme. I'm doing it fervently. And I'm fervently wrong. Some of you are fervent. And some of you have a way of sharing your faith that's fervently wrong. You cannot document your methodology of, of giving faith the way the Bible says we give it. We give it in love. We show it in love. 
When you can't show it in love, then just service them and don't say a word. Because they'll learn more from your actions than they will ever from your words. You're ruining it with your words. You're a banging symbol when you speak. You're loud and you're obnoxious. So be quiet for the sake of salvation and do work. Show up and mow their lawn. Show up and pull some weeds. Show up and wash some dishes. Show up and fix a broken fence. Show up and do something about your faith and stop talking about faith and slamming faith on their faith. Opening the door and slam. There's people who stand out on the street and you know, slam Jesus. Hey, I'm not telling anybody how to do it. I'm just saying there's a way that's effective and there's a way that's not the best use of our time and energy. Do you see Jesus anywhere? Show me the chapter and we'll talk about it. We'll discuss it. Show me the chapter where Jesus stood at the street corner and yelling at them all, you're all going to hell. So, so where do we, so that's what I'm saying. You can be fervent about something, church, and be fervently wrong. If you're blind, you're blind. This is why you need a community of believers that know you, that you trust, and that you love. Because they can come pray with you and see your blind spot and say, you know what, let's pray for this. You can't see this. And when the scales fall off your eyes, and you realize that prodigal that you have, church, last week we had a bunch of our prodigals in here. I see some of my prodigal families as well. Prodigal families, let me give you a quick heads up. The prodigal you have is not a representation of your good parenting or bad parenting. Okay? Your prodigal is a representation of God's faithfulness to the lost. You stay focused, you stay in it, and you stay in it to the last breath. Thief on the cross. Zero hope. So just throw the white flag down and quit. No, you never quit on that prodigal. You never lose focus that that prodigal has helped keep you in the game. You had no choice, prodigal parents, but to be in the game every day. Right? Some of us other parents, our kids are good and we're like, tra-la-la, you know, I got this parenting thing figured out. Dangerous place to be. At any moment, your kid could go prodigal on you. And when he does, it doesn't mean you failed. It just means there's a greater opportunity in your life to see God move and God restore. Keep your focus on getting the scales off their eyes because now they can move from darkness to light. What do you mean darkness to light? He says, literally, from Satan to God. You're either for God or you're against God. If you're for God, then you're about God. If you're not for God, then you're for Satan. You're like, no, I'm not. Yes, you are. There's no other option available. It's about God. It's about Satan. Those are the only two people fighting for your soul. There's no one else fighting for your soul. Now, there's other religions that might try to teach you that there's other planets and you can be part of all that. And, and I would just say that's all part of Satan's kingdom. Okay? Because that's a lie. It's not substantiated in the Bible. There's only one God and only one kingdom. And he's invited those who want to put their faith and their hope in, in Jesus Christ, the redemption of your sins, the hope of your eternity, in him. If not... Your eyes open indicate that you now have the ability to see because you have a clean heart. A clean heart, a clean mind is from God, which now releases you to receive forgiveness of your sins. Uh, I was talking with the, somebody this week about the Romans Road, a very useful passage in scripture where we talk about, uh, I don't know how to lead someone to the Lord. It's been around a long time. Um, the ABCs have been around, accept, believe, confess, following those scriptures. But I think for those of you who never heard the Romans Road, I'll give you a brief rundown it. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
that establishes the baseline. Where are we coming from? How are we working at this? All have sinned. How many are righteous? How many would go to heaven by their birthright? None. There's none righteous, not one. Okay? That's the starting point for everyone. Romans 5, 8, but God made a way through. How did he make a way through? He demonstrated his love for us that while we were still sinners on the baseline, Christ died for us. Okay? Then scripture now proclaims in Romans 5.18, the results of one action, one action on the cross, is righteousness and justification that brings life for all men. Romans 5.18. Now, salvation is available. How? Romans 6.23. The wages of sin was death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Okay? 3.23, 5.8, It's a simple path to simply say this. God loves you, okay? God cares about you. He's not going to hang you out as the theists or deists once believed. God put the earth in motion and then backed away from it and said, good luck. I hope you make the right choice, right? He has never left us. The Bible actually says that. I will never leave or forsake you. Church, if you're one of those people who says, I hate being alone, if you're a follower of Christ, can I just confirm something for you this morning? You are never alone if you're a follower of Christ, ever. You've never been alone. That's a lie. Use that this morning to overcome that fear the next time. I'm alone, and I'm by myself. The sky is falling. No, it's not. Okay? You are with Christ, and the Holy Spirit lives inside of you, and the Bible has a beautiful little passage that we use for a lot of different reasons, but let me clarify. You plus the Holy Spirit equals two. What does the Bible say about where two or more are gathered? I am present or with you. New information available to you. It's been there the whole time. You plus the Holy Spirit, you're never alone. You have the power of the Almighty God. Dudamas, the Greek word power. Dudamas, root word for dynamite. What kind of power are we talking about? Dynamite. You have the explosive power of the Holy Spirit in your life because of the, the God who's in you, the Spirit of God that's in you. And you can do all things now through Christ who strengthens you, right? This stuff will make sense if you just let it fall in line the way that it's supposed to be. If you want to rearrange it so that it helps you out, be careful. Sin has to be paid in full, whether people like it or not. If churches don't want to talk about sin anymore or blood anymore, or whatever, I'm sorry. I'm going to talk, every time the Bible says sin, every time the Bible says blood, I'm going to say sin and blood because we need to be reminded. We've been bought with a price, okay? Your freedom wasn't free. Just like your American citizenship freedoms that you enjoy wasn't free. Ask any vet in here who served and watched somebody fall what the cost of life is worth, Right? And some of our vets are still paying that price today. Okay. We, have, we ride the back. We ride the coattail of all these who have gone before us. And we say, oh, I'm free. I can do whatever I want. Okay, well, it's Costa Mesa. And then if you feel like you want to try the anarchy way, try driving through a signal without stopping. Because I stop at the signal and I almost get hit every time at Broadway and Newport. And I'm trying to follow the rules, but I'm wondering if everyone else is following the same set of rules. Oh, anarchy, you know, what, what we need is we need less rules. Okay, um, there is a sport in a third world country where 
about 50 people from each side of the neighborhoods come together, and it's like football and soccer, but with boxing and jujitsu as the rules. And the goal is, however many people are left standing, because most of them are not standing in a very short period of time, pick up the ball or the individual increment, whatever they decide, and try to run it across the goal. And somehow this allows these neighborhoods who have vented, you know, energies against each other to once a year have some kind of event. And then they show you, and you watch it, and you think, dear God, help that society. I mean, that's what you want to watch? Somebody running down the sideline, and someone just runs up behind him and cold punches the guy in the head and just knocks him out? And they're all laughing, and I'm like, that, when you, if you saw anarchy, if, you, if anarchy existed in front of you, the last thing you would be screaming for is anarchy. We still complain watching sports now if the ref misses a call, right? We need the ref to have the rules. We need people to follow the rules. The only way you're going to really know if someone's better or worse than the other team is if we both follow the same set of rules. But think about that simple sports equation in ministry. The rules say if no one's paid for your sins, you're blind. And if you're blind, you don't understand what eternity means. So when I bring eternity to you in my salvation, I would encourage you, take a deep breath. You spend a lot of different times processing big decisions in your life, buying a house, a remodel, your marriage, relationship, job decisions. There's a lot of things in your life that you will stop and you'll do due diligence because they're important. But when it comes to truly understanding what you got in salvation, some of you are misinformed still, Right? It's kind of like when we have to write our will and testimony, when that moment finally happens, and we're so misinformed, and we're like, wow, glad that I finally did this. Of course, Jen and I did it, and then we never signed it, so it's still no good, okay? So we got that going for us, so congratulations, children, you're getting nothing, although everything is allocated on paper. Mom and I have been really busy, and we never signed it. It's truthful, by the way. It's... But right, right, we don't need it until we need it. Uh, what was the game we played? A Monopoly, you know, get out of jail free. No, you can't put me in jail. I got this card. And, and so that's what we do with our faith. It's like, no, I got Jesus. And then you live the rest of your life like it doesn't matter. But then when you get called out, you're like, I got Jesus. It's like, that's not what he wants. Paul's saying that's not what he wants. I'm standing in front of you, king, and I'm going to tell you the truth, the whole truth. And here's the whole deal, truth. Um, I want you to receive an inheritance so you can have a place among the people. Well, I'm the king. I already have my place. No, I'm not talking about where moth and thieves can steal or rust can destroy. I'm talking about an inheritance where it can't be destroyed. I'm talking about leaving something for your children that's greater value than anything you will ever attest to a piece of paper and leave physically behind. Right? I just bought a new car and it's so new and it smells new and ah. And I'm like, how much is your car payment? $700. I'm like, okay. You also need to go see the doctor and do some mental health counseling because <laughs> if you would have bought that same car a year back, you would have saved 12000 And I've, you know, bought like 75 cars. I can walk you through this, but I mean, yay for you, I guess. 20 years from now, are you going to leave that car for someone? Maybe, if, if you really took good care of it. 30 years from now, still going to be passed down the line? 40 years from now? Chances are, unless it's like a classic car or something, right? What do we really hope to leave them? Have you asked yourself that in the last year of your life? What do you really plan on leaving your children? What's your legacy? What inheritance? 
Well, I, you know, I have. I've talked about it. And I, I want to tell you this. The greatest thing that you can leave your children is a guaranteed eternity with their family. <laughs> because it's been paid for in full. And you just need to receive it. Right? If, if I bought you a Rolex watch for Christmas and I sent one to each one of you for Christmas and it was under your tree and you opened every present except for that one and you said, I'll get it next year. What kind of relationship am I going to have on January 1st when I come up to you and say, did you get my present? You're like, I did. I'm saving it for next year. You're saving? Did you get any other presents that were $10,000? Are they still sitting under your tree? It's the most valuable present. I'm going to get it later. Maybe I'm not a watch person. I have my $100 Apple watch and I'm good. What are we saying no to? What, do you realize the value of the gift under the tree? Do you realize what has been done so that it can be placed at your feet so that no man would go to hell? I didn't make hell for you. Why are you telling people? Uh, you know, one of the single greatest questions you will get in apologetics. If God is good and loving, why does he send us to hell? That is a blind person speaking. Okay? That is a blind person speaking, asking someone who can see, what does purple really look like? Okay? Well, you can't see. So what does it matter if I tell you what purple really looks like? Because you can't see, okay? God never intended anyone to go to hell. It wasn't made for us. If I make something for someone, then that's who it's for. The devil and fallen angels, right? That's who it was made for. Let's get it clear. Our God has not, will not ever send one person to hell. He hasn't and he won't. Because he has an inheritance set aside in heaven that says, I not only built it, but I got lots of rooms. Hey, so for those of us whose families are getting older and parents are getting older, I wish I had lots of room. I would love to take my mother-in-law in. My parents just signed something this week to move to a retirement home where my brother's running it. I'm not really sure how that's going to work. Um, but you know what? Taking care of your elderly parents is a challenge. Ask anyone in here who's had to do it. Brutal challenge. I want to be a good and faithful son. And I've tried three different times and walked them into three different sets of housings and had them sign and do different things and none of them have worked out. I want them to have an inheritance. I know I have an inheritance that my parents have set aside for me and I am truly grateful. But trying to show that, right? So what can I show them? I'm a good son and I'm going to keep sharing faith with other people and God better take care of them because I can't. Who can you persuade with your salvation? What can you actually do with your testimony? You can't persuade anyone. We don't persuade people into heaven. Okay? Well, I'm a, I'm a theological person and I want to do theological debates. You don't, you don't debate someone into heaven. Okay? You're not going to break someone down into heaven. The way someone wants to go to heaven is like the prodigal who wakes up in the pig slop. Okay? There was zero theological conversations going on in the pig slop that morning. There was one individual, a bunch of pigs, and a lot of smell. An opportunity in doing whatever his task was, feeding them, came about. He was allowed to critically think for a brief moment, is this what I want to do? Why am I doing this? And in that moment, he made a decision. I have squandered everything. I have squandered everything. I was given everything. Now that I've squandered everything, what do I want to do? Hmm. You know, at my father's house right now, even the pig feeding job 
is 10 times better than this. I'm just going to go home. I'm going to work it out with dad. I'm just going to apologize. And I know I won't be a preferred son anymore. I know that I've trashed my whole legacy. But I'd rather just go home, eat crow, and move on down the line and trust that in my father's house, it's going to be better than it is here. Theology 101, church. Explain to me the nuances of somebody debating with him. Nobody explained anything. Someone shared with him faith. Someone showed him faith. Someone explained to him the value of having an inheritance. And one day he woke up and realized that was better than what he had. And he wanted to go back. And was the father waiting as the bridge, as he sees the long, smelly, stinky son, maybe smelled him from a distance, right? He was feeding the pigs after all. Stern with his hands crossed. Oh, this is going to be good. I'm going to get this kid. Right? Just like when your kid breaks something and you really want to discipline them, but in your mind you're like, I broke stuff when I was a kid. My mom was a master with the wooden spoon. You would have thought she was trained by a herd of ninjas. <laughs> I broke stuff, and as fast as she could grab that bucket. I mean, spaghetti was great growing up as a kid, but that, all the implements for spaghetti, the noodle strainer, the thing with the little prongs on it, were all at times used against me. I was that, and I developed my own you know, blocking method or whatever it was, and I was a kid. I needed discipline. Okay? If you spared the rod with me, wrath was coming to your household. And they didn't. And now I'm a pastor. <laughs> Praise God for discipline. I wanted the inheritance. I saw my parents, and I believe in my parents, and even to this date, I'm grateful for what my parents showed and shared with me. And now I share that with my children. You discipline those you love. You're not doing them any favors when you don't discipline them for breaking the law. There is a price, church, to be paid for breaking the law. And if you want to break the law of sin and live in blindness, then you say no to me today, but one day you also say no to God himself. And when you stand in front of the beam of seed and there is no advocacy in Jesus Christ, just remember, remember what you chanced for eternity. Now, I'm not saying I'm any better because 323 told me that, that we all stand on the line together. We're all equal. But the way that we get off that line and get in line with him is to place him in front of us and say, I yield. I need a Lord. I need a Savior. And we give our life to him. What happened now that Paul changed his testimony? What happened now that Paul realized that all of a sudden there were some things in life that were a little bit more important? Listen to these last three verses and I'm done. I'm done to almost before 11.30, even better for me. Hot diggity. The king stood up and the governor and Bernice, who were sitting in front of him, and when they'd gone out, they began talking to one another, saying, this man is not doing anything deserving death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, you know what? This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Oh, for three. Two governors and now a king. And no one is going to place a charge against this man as he prepares to get in a boat and head out on a very long journey from Caesarea, coastal Caesarea, below Jerusalem, all the way across open water to Rome. We already know Paul's journeys on the oceans have not been very friendly. And all he's going to be thinking about this whole way over there is, I'm going to stand before the king with no charges what about this? Is there ever a time in God's economy where freedom is not the goal? He's not free, right? He's still captive. 
Any of you complain about your freedoms being kind of taken advantage of now? When you see the world now, it feels like some of our freedoms are being imposed upon. I started thinking about this week, right? Our freedoms, my freedom, your freedom. What happens in God's economy when freedom's not the issue? Where, where is God not reconciled? Shouldn't God have made him free? He free and free and free indeed. I thought that we are. Okay, he's free spiritually, but he's not free in reality. He's done nothing wrong. He's been preaching the whole time. He's been trying to share with the lost. And the only guarantee that God can give him is, I'm not wasting your chains, your tears, or your pain. Not in my economy. That's the real value in my economy. Your pain, your tears, all for gain. It will make a difference in someone else's life. And remember, your whole life has been conditioned for one thing, to stand before Caesar. And by the way, church, the Caesar he's about to stand before? Nero. Nero. Okay, you may not know anything about history or something about history. Only one Nero used Christians as candles. Candles. Human, alive candles. He lit the way to the Colosseum, lit the way, the road, with Christians. And that's who he's appealing to. After getting out of Agrippa and his incestual sister, Bernice. That's just not fair. It's never been fair. It will never be fair. There's nothing fair in this life. And it's not freedom-based. It's cost-based. And none of you paid the cost. Only one person hung on a cross and said, to die." Right? Paid in full. Only one person. And if he determines that your life should be lived in pain, in fear, in chains, I'm only asking you to make one consideration that Paul did. Keep the main thing the main thing and throw seeds. Because it's not about being fair. None of this is fair but it's what God asked him to do because there's a greater purpose behind it. Paul is leading people and sharing people. I mean, probably a large reason why we have the faith that we have today for as important and significant as Jesus is to the singularity of our faith. If you really had to say, okay, give me the one that one that really just makes a difference. Paul is the most singular, significant guy in the Bible. 14,000 nautical traveled miles. Every major church and the whole of the entirety of the new world probably has his DNA and fingerprints on it. Witnessed and witnessed and witnessed to countless upon countless, countless people. Paul has probably done more to foster our faith and the faith that we have today as seeing us as Gentiles and bringing God's word to us. Paul and Peter. Two of God's single instruments who saw the value in their testimony every time they brought it one-on-one with a person and thought, today, Samaritan woman, I'm going to share faith with you. And today, Samaritan woman, your scales are going to fall off your eyes. And today, Samaritan woman, you will see life in a whole new way. And what was the result of the Samaritan woman seeing life in a whole new way? Running back to the Samaritan village... Come see, come see, what? 
a man who knows my future, a man who knows all these things. Listen to him. How many people come to faith from the Samaritan woman? It's documented 3,000. 3,000. And yeah, it's probably just counting just men, right? And the way they did the count back then was kind of unique. I mean, from the feeding of the 5,000 multiple times, they usually just count men, right? Women and children are not in it. This is a large percentage of people, an entire village, coming to faith because one woman got water at 12 o'clock noon. Because along the way, guys, ministry is happening. Along the way, you're sharing and showing your faith. And do you really, really, really know what you're sharing and showing? Have you really thought about the value of what you're sharing? Or have you just been too embarrassed to even do it? Let me finish with this. This is why we testify. So the lost can be found. So the spiritually sick can be healed. So the deaf can hear. So that you and I can spend eternity with the people we love. Because that's what truly reflects the heart of our Father. Anything else they don't know about our God, we'll talk to them once they've come to faith, right? You can learn more, you can know more, you can experience more once you've come to faith, okay? Once the Spirit of God is living and breathing inside of you, you now have the ability to go to scriptures and go to God's word and go to good counsel and have that speak greater truth to you. If God's not, if God's not living inside of you, you hear it, and it leaves, and like the seeds you land in the rocky soil, it might grow up, but it just gets quickly choked out, right? We need, we need salvation to get in there and take root. And now they can see, and now they can learn, and now they can grow. And what's the results of it? You had a part of eternity for someone else. Eternity, pretty big, right? I mean, right now, someone in this congregation is going to have a part of my eternity, like my life on this earth, which is pretty significant, that someone would donate something from their own body and taking whatever chances and risks that go along with that to, to bless someone else, to, to extend life for someone else. But what if you could extend life for eternity? How much greater is that value? Why is it that only 10% of believers... 10 out of 100 believers will ever share their faith. Let's break that down. Let's destroy that. Let's destroy that. Let's just do it as a church. If, if 150 believers decided to go out there and share, how much faith could come to this town? Right? The power of one seed. Remember this from last week from the sower and the seed. The power of one seed is never one seed grows one believer. Right? Did you remember the, the principle? One seed germinates at minimum 30, 60, or 100-fold. 30, 60, or 100. Does that look like one-to-one? -one? The power of one salvation is never just going to affect one person. It will exponentially domino fall through the years and through the legacy of that individual to an entire generation of people. That's what the Word of God confirms. Why wouldn't you prioritize that? If your testimony continues to reflect everything that God has kind of done for you and about you and whatever, this week, and I'll just maybe remind yourself, maybe just share it with your spouse or someone you trust. Go over your testimony again and think about it. Maybe there's a chance for you to bring some components of faith about what it's really about, about you being blind and God making you see. 
Maybe just realize sometimes if you would just ask them, what is your biggest fear in life? Maybe what's, instead of me telling you all about my testimony, you know I love the Lord and the Lord has sent me to you. How can I help you? What question about faith are you struggling with? Let me walk you up into the throne room of God. Let me kneel with you before the king. Let me help you understand the significance about the decision you're about to make. Because if you would put due diligence in to buy a car or to take a job or to get married, right? If you would do those kind of things, why wouldn't you take the same amount of due diligence about a decision for eternity? Well, we're just going to be worm food, Jeff. And that's, uh, that's all there was. And that's all. I've had people tell me a lot of very interesting, you know, hypotheses about what they think is going to happen after life. Hey, I can't believe that's what you want to chance it to. And that breaks my heart. But that's a decision that you're making. And now that decision is going to affect everyone in your family and your grandchildren, and so on, and so on. And that's brutal. But I can tell you that's not the truth. Okay? There's a reason why we wake up and see a sunset and think, wow, that's spectacular. Right? There's a reason why I love babies. And somebody said, well, my baby was crying last week. Hey, this guy loves babies. I love babies. Bring your babies to church. Let them cry all service long. I have grandchildren right now, and I get to hold them, and I get to look at them, and I get to think about and postulate what it could be and what it might be, and I'm just overwhelmed with a sense of joy. They're not saying anything. My, my newest grandson has no words yet, right? Just the contact, just the looking at his little blue eyes and his semi-bald hair already as he looks like an old man at three weeks old as his hair falls on and off. And I just think, man, I love this little dude so much, and he, and he doesn't have no words, Right? Or the times when your family has that cool moment. Maybe you guys have been married long enough or have those cool moments where you just get to share something with somebody and you just feel glad to be alive and really grateful for what you have, right? The things that really matter are the things that God designed. And everything about what God has designed has been designed for us to be significant. It happens in relationship. It doesn't happen in mass. And it's going to happen because you took the time to serve somebody else with your life. And consider that your life is a living sacrifice. And now the words that you speak, speak life. Right? There's a song on the radio that says, speak life. I confirm that. You speak life. You speak sight to the deaf. When you invoke Jesus' name in a conversation and say, would you consider my Jesus? Would you consider my Savior as an opportunity to kind of walk you through life and where you're at? I pray that you would. I'm going to invite the band back up and I'm going to pray. And if you have any issues or problems that you came in with this morning and they're still struggling in your mind, I would invite you to come up and pray. If you have prayer concerns that you want to have the elders address, we pray every Wednesday for those. Matter of fact, we had our largest elder group prayer this week. It was fabulous to see all the guys rallying, praying for your concerns. If there's anything the church can do to serve you, like I said, through our care ministry or anything like that, we're here to serve. Be blessed and encouraged by the family of God because that's what you're part of when you're here at Lighthouse Community Church. Father God, this morning, in the name of Jesus, we just once again thank you for the opportunity to consider our testimony, to consider um, this journey that Paul's on, this incredible 33-year plan of just trusting that he wanted to be the greatest Pharisee that the world had ever seen, and, and doing everything that he possibly could to be that. And even though that didn't turn out for him to be what you had called him to, Father, when, when he finally could see, when he finally could hear, when he finally could realize how much you loved him and how much you'd forgiven him, he spent that same amount of time every single time, regardless of what went against him. You know, snake bitten and shipwreck and stone, 
whatever it was, Father, nothing deterred him from sharing his faith. Nothing deterred anything so that the king actually says, are you trying to witness to me? I perceive that you're trying to witness to me. May every testimony that we have the privilege of sharing convey to that individual that we are trying to witness to them. That we are trying to convince them of the absolute joy and splendor that comes in giving your life to Jesus Christ, who truly is the way, the truth, and life. For there is no other name for which we can be saved, less the name of Jesus Christ. Father, bless everything we say and do in this building. We do it in your son's precious and holy name. Amen. I would invite you to stand with me while we sing this. You can make this song your prayer. Giving you my heart and all that is within, I lay it all down for the sake of you, my King. Giving you my dreams, laying down my rights, giving up my pride for the promise of new life. That verse again. Giving you my heart and all that is within, lay it all down for the sake of you, my King. Giving you my dreams, laying down my rights, giving up my pride. The promise of new life, and I surrender all to you, all to you, and I And all the world holds dear, I count it all as loss. For the sake of knowing you, the glory of your name, to know the lasting joy, even sharing in your pain. And I. Oh
Thank you, Jesus. Blessings on all of you for coming and joining us today. We hope that you'll be back again next week. We're going to go to chapter 27 next week. So I just pray blessings on all of you. May you just walk with the Lord and take all the words you heard today to heart. Spread your seed. Spread your seed. In Jesus' name, God bless. Have a great day.